Um, the picture behind me is a picture of G.K. Chesterton, born in 1874, died in 1936, and um, he was a an English writer, a journalist. Um, he was a philosopher. He was a literary critic. Um, and um, you probably ought to at least know something about him. C.S. Lewis accredits G.K. Chesterton's writings for leading him to Christ. So Chesterton wrote a whole bunch. He wrote some children's stories, some other, lots of essays, a number of books. But he wrote a book called Orthodoxy and wrote another book called The Everlasting Man. Um, I encourage you to read one of those. Start with The Everlasting Man. C.S. Lewis said that The Everlasting Man was the best apologetic case for Christ that he ever read and was the inspiration behind Lewis writing Mere Christianity. And um, um, Chesterton was known for, for kind of expressing in, in kind of pithy sayings. He could capture truths and condense them down into a sentence that would stick in your head. So a couple of his quotes to give you an idea of how G.K. Chesterton wrote. Uh, first one, fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. Second one, to have a right to do a thing is not, not at all the same as to be right in doing it. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it is good. When learned men begin to use their reason, he writes, I generally discover they haven't got any. This one, dead things go with the flow. Only living things can go against it. He, for those of you who are married and those of you who are going to get married, marriage is a duel to the death which no married person of honor should ever decline. Marriage is a duel to the death. And if you're married, you should be in it forever. By experts in poverty, I mean not sociologists, sociologists, but poor people. We are learning to do a great many clever things in our day. The next great task will be to learn not to do them. He wrote an introduction to the book of Job, and he says, The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of men. So you get an idea of kind of how he talked. Um, he also said, um, if there were, were no God, there would be no atheists. And the reason I mention him to you, first of all, I want you to be aware of who he is. Um, and I suggest that you, you read him. Um, and if you like children's stories, start with The Princess and Curdie, which is delightful and fairly significant stories that have a depth behind them like the Chronicles of Narnia. But um, the reason I mention him is that as I've been meditating on Psalm 29 throughout this week, one of Chesterton's quotes has kept kind of ringing in my head. He wrote that when it comes to God, our goal is not to get the heavens into our heads. The goal is to get our heads into the heavens. Too often we try to understand and figure out God. We try to get God figured out in our heads. When probably more often we ought to try to experience God by getting our heads into the heavens. And that's exactly and literally what Psalm 29 encourages us to do. Psalm 29 is, um, is a very majestic psalm. It's listed as, as or categorized as a royal psalm because it talks about the enthronement of God. The most profound name for God that the Jews had was the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is in almost every single line of Psalm 29. 18 times the name Yahweh is mentioned in just 11 verses. 
the poetic vocabulary of Psalm 29. We suspect it's hard to find, you know, markers for dates. We suspect it's one of the very earliest psalms. But the poetry is rich and deep, a vocabulary with words like glory, strength, adoration, beauty, splendor, holiness, and shalom, all words with weight and depth to them. In Psalm 29, there are loud claps of thunder, and there are flashes of lightning. There are only about 10 psalms that are actually called nature psalms. Psalm 29 is a nature psalm. Labeled that because the the nature psalms, we, we experience something in nature and we learn to see God in some kind of a new way. So if you are a kind of person that feels close to God in nature, Psalm 29 might become one of your favorite psalms. Um, writers say that uh, one writer says, seldom does any psalmist exhibit more graphic poetical power than the one who wrote this psalm. And then right in the middle of the psalm, there is this, this moment of silent, profound awe. So, the psalmist starts out with first a call to worship. One of the greatest calls to worship in all the psalms. So great that it's quoted by a number of other psalms and a number of other places in the scriptures. Then he moves on to, um, to describe a violent thunderstorm and how we can learn about the voice of God by looking at nature. Then he goes on to the enthronement of God as supreme above all things forever. And then he ends his psalm with a profound blessing because all of these things are true. So first we have the call to worship. We read it earlier in the service. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of his holiness. So what does it mean to ascribe something to someone? You read some theologians, and you get the idea that their picture of God is some kind of a narcissist in heaven who needs our attention and our praise and our worship. Worship me, extol me, you know, praise me, pay attention to me. And you almost get this picture that God's a heavenly narcissist. When in actuality, guess what? God doesn't need our praise or our worship. God's not somehow actualized. He doesn't somehow um, kind of draft off the energy that we give him in praise and worship. As a matter of fact, God's not changed by our praise. God is completely, completely fulfilled and satisfied in the circle of the Trinity. God didn't create the universe so that he'd find more people to love him and extol him. God created the universe just out of the joy of creating something wonderful and beautiful and to extend his love. So Marla and I were married for seven years before we decided to have our first child. We didn't decide to have our children so that our children would sit around and praise us and love us all the time. We decided to have children as an expression of our love for each other because we wanted to love out of our love. It's a lot that way with God. God created the universe not to get something out of it, but to express a fullness of his love. 
So what's the deal with all the scriptures then that say, say worship and ascribe to the glory, the glory to the Lord, worship him according to the splendor of his holiness? What's that about? Why would that be there? Well, you know what? If worship isn't for God to get something out of it, maybe worship is for us. So how does that work? Because when we ascribe glory to God's name, we're not giving God anything. We're not conferring anything on him. We are simply recognizing something that is deeply and profoundly true about God. That's what it is to ascribe someone to something to someone. We don't give them something they don't have. We call out of them something that we see in their truest being. When we do that, whether we do that with a person or whether we do that with God, when we ascribe and recognize what is deeply and profoundly true about another, something happens inside of us so that we fall in love with the other, whether it's God or whether it's people. Worship isn't about God feeling good about himself. Worship is about us seeing the greatness and glory and honor of God. And then because we've seen that, because we've worshipped him in the splendor of his holiness, we fall in love with him more than ever before. Worship is about us loving God first and foremost. It turns out that when we ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, we fall in love with God and we call out to him far more readily in our life. And when we don't, we're usually trying to live our life on our own strength and our own wisdom and our own power. And then when the storms come, which is going to happen next in the, in the song, when the storms come, we're not used to calling out and loving God because we've not ascribed to him the glory due his name. If you take one thing from this sermon, take this. When you worship God in the splendor of his holiness, you are blessed and enriched and deepened and strengthened. So, I'd like to give you a chance to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name right here, right now. When you came in, you were given a three-by-five card. Pull out that card. If you did not get a three-by-five card, raise your hand, and some ushers are going to come by and give you a card. You're going to have to find a pen. Keep your hands up till they get there. Um, and there's some coming up, to the, up above to the, the balcony. So, what I want you to do is I simply want you to respond to Psalm 29, 1 and 2. I want you to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. So write down attributes that you know are true about God. And I'm going to give you like a minute and a half to do it, and you're going to hold on to the cards because we're going to use the cards when we come back to the Lord's table. During communion, you're going to come back and refer to what you wrote there. Okay, put your hands up higher because people don't see you. Okay, so up here in the front and over there on the far side. All right, so what I want you to do is simply fulfill Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord honor and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Just take two minutes and write what you know to be true about God. All right, hold on to those cards, and we'll come back to them in just a few moments. So after the psalmist extends this, this really glorious call 
to worship God for our blessing. He then recounts a violent, violent thunderstorm. And he recounts it um, graphically. He, he talks about it, how the storm comes from the Mediterranean, hits Lebanon, goes up the coast, through the mountains of Lebanon, then kind of circles around and goes south into the wilderness of Kadesh. If, um, if he'd been writing about us here in Boston, he would have talked about like a hurricane storm coming across New York City and then moving up and blowing down the trees of the Berkshires and coming back east and causing flash flooding in Boston before it goes up to devastate parts of New Hampshire and Maine. And from the language that the, the psalmist uses, it's really clear that he has firsthand experience of a really violent thunderstorm. You know, I've, some of you probably remember your parents probably said, when there's a thunderstorm, don't go stand in the middle of a field. Okay, don't go on the top of a mountain, all right, because you might get killed. It seems like that's probably what the psalmist did. Sounds like this storm was coming in. He went up to the top of the mountain, just watched how violent this storm could be in the middle of it. And, um, and so we kind of wanted you to get a feel for it. This video clip isn't going to, um, going to do it completely, but it will start to immerse you in a little bit of this nature psalm as the psalmist is talking about. So if we can turn off the lights, then um, we'll play the clip. And then in, before the clip's over, I will read the middle part of the psalm to you. All right? voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Mount Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. 
and all in his temple cry, glory. So seven times in this psalm, the voice of the Lord claps like thunder. The word for the the phrase voice of the Lord is kol Yahweh. The Hebrew word kol can be translated as voice or it can be translated as thunder. The voice of the Lord kol Yahweh rumbles across the skies and over our lives. Verse 3. Kol Yahweh, the voice of God, thunders over many waters. The term for God there is Elohim. The term for holiness is Kabad. Elohim Kabad thunders over the storms, which means God is sovereign over every storm that can ever happen in our lives and in our world. Verse 4, Kol Yahweh is powerful, which means there's nothing in our lives or in our world that God cannot address and overcome by his power. Verse 4, Kol Yahweh, the voice of the Lord is majestic, which means there are times when we should just be driven to silence when God speaks. Verse 5, Kol Yahweh, the voice of the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. So the picture that I found here, we lived in Minnesota for six years, and we would go up to the Boundary Waters um, National Canoe Area way up north in Minnesota, and every once in a while you'd be walking through the forest, and there'd be this whole section of trees that were blown down. This is from a storm in, in 2011, where after the flashes of lightning, there was what they call microbursts, which is just this burst of wind, and it blows down everything in its path. The psalmist is describing that kind of a phenomenon where even the strongest trees of the day, the cedars of Lebanon, are blown over because of the power of God. There's nothing in our lives or in our world that can withstand the moving power of God. There's nothing you will ever face that the power of God cannot be present and overcome. Verse 7, Kol Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The reference is to lightning. The only other place that it's used in the Old Testament, it talks about lightning. The voice of the Lord flashes like lightning. And so, um, so I, I didn't know this, but a, a bolt of lightning has more heat, has five times more heat than is on the face of the sun. Five times more heat. This picture is from... Um, from um, the um, Atlanta airport, when they had a time when they said the planes couldn't fly, 34 bolts of lightning coming down all at once caught on this. The power of God is greater. The voice of God is greater than all the power of all of those 34 bolts of life. Verse 7, Kol Yahweh shakes the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm that was so strong that it, it kind of, you felt the ground move. In Panama, there were, there were torrential um, rainstorms that would just dump on you for like 20 minutes, and the lightning and the thunder. And one time, I, my girls were, I'm such a bad dad, um, my girls were like, um, like four and five years old, and 
something that I asked them to do with the neighbors. And they said, but it's raining out and we're scared. It was Christine. And I said, Christine, just go and do it. And so she says, I'm too scared. Sarah, will you come with me? Now, Sarah's like, you know, younger. And so Sarah says, okay. And they go out the door and the door closes. And there is a, a lightning bolt and thunder that I have never, ever heard worse in my life. As soon as the door closes, and I hear this screaming outside. And I go and find my little girls and feel like I'm a bad dad. If you've ever felt... Strong, strong thought. It will shake buildings. The voice of the Lord will shake mountains. It will move the earth beneath us. Verse 9. Kol Yahweh causes the deer to give birth prematurely. It strips the forest bare and all on the face of the earth are silent in awe. which leads the psalmist to the eternal enthronement of God. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever, forever. The Lord our God is eternally enthroned over anything in our lives and anything in our world. This is our God. This is the God to whom we cry out. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is enthroned forever above everything ever in our lives. So what do you think of as a sure thing? I think gravity is a pretty sure thing, right? If I drop my iPad, it's going to go down. But you know, there are places in the universe where gravity doesn't hold. But there is no place in the universe where God is not enthroned forever as king. Um, we think of, of death as a pretty sure thing, you know, unless Christ comes back and he takes us up um, to the heavens with him. Most of us are going to die. Death's a pretty sure thing. But, you know, there's going to be a point in time when there will be a trumpet sound and the voice of God, same phrase as Psalm 29, the loud voice of God, will call us to come forth from death. Our God is supreme over everything. Our God is supreme over death itself. This is our God. And when I get scared or confused or just I go through these, these you know, seasons of doubt in my life or when I've been failing God, horribly in some way or when I'm in pain I remind myself of what I know that I know that I know about God I've done this enough times in the decades of my life that there's a pattern I remind myself what do I know that I know that I know about God I know that God is good I know that he is loving I know that he is holy I know that he is present And I know that he is enthroned as king forever over all of the universe. So some of us here this morning are facing some storms that are pretty overwhelming in life. The voice of the Lord is over those storms. Some of us are facing sadness or loneliness for some reason. The voice of the Lord will speak into your life 
his love, and his mercy. Some of us are struggling with besetting sins that we hate, but we don't seem to be able to kick them. And the voice of the Lord speaks to our sins and says that, number one, there is forgiveness, and number two, there is power to overcome the sins that trip us up. Some of us are facing struggles in our marriages and in our families, maybe with our family of origin. The voice of the Lord will speak into that situation and will reveal what his desire for you is to do. Some of us have dreams that have been crushed. The voice of the Lord will speak to you either dreams now that are crushed or in the future in every dark night of the soul. Listen for the voice of the Lord. Some of us are um, carrying around shame from something in the past. The voice of the Lord is very clear about our shame. The voice of the Lord says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no shame for those who are in Jesus. And then many of us are pretty wrecked, or we get to times when we are wrecked by the injustice in the world, by racism in the world, by, by evil that's in the world. And the voice of the Lord speaks to that as well. And the voice of the Lord calls us to address every injustice, to pursue compassion and mercy. And the voice of the Lord reminds us there is one day going to come a time when God will make everything right. This is our God. This is our God. And so in conclusion, the psalmist leaves us with a profound blessing. Verse 11, he writes, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. You've heard this before, but it's really true. Let's not ask God to save us from the storms. Let's ask, instead of asking him to save us out of the storms, let's ask him to give us strength for the storms. God doesn't tend to undermine the power of the storms in life, but he's always over those storms. Let's ask God for that kind of strength. And then let's realize that, um, because the, the, the terms here would indicate this, let's realize that God's not just giving power to us individually, but there is a power of God available to the people of God, the community of God, doing the mission of Jesus. And let's ask for that power to be given to us as the followers of Jesus on his mission. And likewise, because the Lord blesses his people with peace, let's ask him to fill us with, to, to, the, to the brim, to the absolute fullest with his peace. If, you, if you're familiar, the Hebrew word for peace is one of the richest words in the Hebrew language. It's shalom. If you've ever had Jewish friends, they will frequently greet you with shalom. And then as you leave, they will say shalom to you. And that is one of the greatest blessings you can ever receive. Because shalom is not just an absence of conflict or turmoil. It's got all of that. But shalom has laid on the positive side as a fullness of life a thriving, a wholeness, a goodness. So when God gives peace to his people, when he blesses his people with peace, he is breathing into us fullness and wholeness and, and vitality for life. But just as with strength, 
let's realize that that's not just for us individually because the, the vocabulary of this verse would say that God wants to give his people who follow him his peace as a community of faith together as we carry out the mission of Jesus. Because the idea is this, that God wants to pour his goodness and peace into us so that it will flow through us and touch the world around us. So when the world is weak and in turmoil, the people of strength and peace are the ones who ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The people of strength and peace are the ones who heed and pay attention and listen for the powerful voice of God in their lives. And the people of strength and peace are those who know God is supreme, enthroned as king forever over everything. Lord Jesus, we, your people, come to you now to give you the honor that is due to your name. Because even though you were enthroned forever, you were willing to take on flesh and to live for us and to die for us so that we might once again receive the strength and the peace of God. So even in this moment at this table of friendship, this table of communion, we listen for you even as we worship you in the splendor of your holiness. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So take a moment.